Hello and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined as always by Richard Epstein, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at New York University's Law School. Richard, how are you? I'm fine. Well, Richard, you and I were prepared and looking forward to talking about a completely different topic today when last night, uh, as so often happens, as so often happens, uh, circumstances intervened, specifically news surrounding President Trump. And in this case, we're speaking on August 22nd. Uh, so yesterday, the president's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations. And on the same day, the president's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was convicted of eight counts of uh, violation of federal law related to taxes and bank fraud. Uh, and so we thought it would be good to take a step back and look both at the specifics of what's happening right now and the bigger picture. Um, Richard, I should just ask at the beginning, what's your broad reaction to the news of yesterday? I think both are more or less predictable. The surprising thing about Manafort was, of course, that these relate to events that took place over a decade ago. And uh, what happened in this particular situation is they were able to turn one of his uh, uh, co-workers, a man named Sean Gates, I believe, and that sort of precipitated it. I was not surprised to see either the conviction or the or the hung jury. Uh, what is very clear is that there is nothing whatsoever in anything that was said or done which relates to his term of office as Trump's campaign manager or anything to do with the Russia investigation. And with respect to Michael Cohen, nothing is a surprise. The man has a reputation is in tatters. And what he does is essentially he says, I'm pleading guilty to campaign fraud because I got directions from candidate Trump. Uh, I think the case on campaign fraud is very tricky. Uh, uh, of course, it was not a situation where Trump was investigated or that anybody, in fact, had done any cross-examination of Michael Cohen. So I think it's obviously going to present enormous political problems for the president, uh, but I'm not so sure how serious the legal presidents are until we get further information about the interaction between the two men and the motivations that the president had uh, to either authorize the payment in advance or to, after the payment was made, to authorize reimbursement for Cohen. Yeah, one of the real challenges in all of this, whether as a lawyer looking specifically at the legal issues or just as a citizen who's interested in the, the broader questions about, about government, uh, is just trying to keep track of everything that's being alleged in the timeframes and so on. At this point, it would take a, uh, it would take a flowchart the size of uh, Fenway Park's big green monster left field wall to keep track of, of just when things happened and to whom and involving who. Uh, as you mentioned, both, both Manafort and Cohen were talking about things that happened, allegations of, of crimes that occurred before President Trump was elected, let alone took, uh, took office. In the case of Manafort, we're talking about things that occurred years and years before he became campaign finance, or sorry, before he became uh, campaign manager for President Trump. Um, allegations of money he was receiving from overseas and and what he did with it and what he spent it on, if I remember correctly, an ostrich jacket or something like that. And yes, it looked beautiful. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I don't have much taste in fashion. I wouldn't know a good ostrich jacket from a cheap one. Uh, but with 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 all of this. President Trump's response and the response of many of his supporters has been to say this has nothing to do with Russian collusion. There's nothing in any of this about Russian collusion. This has nothing to do with the Mueller investigation, or at least the things the Mueller investigation should be uh, 
pursuing. And that's not an unfair criticism to begin with, that all of this are, these are all things that happened before President Trump was elected and have nothing to do uh, with Russian collusion per se. So why is it that the prosecutors are pursuing this so doggedly? And then well, the next question, oh, please go ahead. Yeah, no. My reaction is I agree with you half, but not fully on the Manafort situ- or rather on the uh, Cohen situation. Manafort is an effort to essentially embarrass the president. Uh, the Cohen thing, at least alleges conduct not in 2006 with the sex affair, if any, uh, but rather it's with respect to conduct leading up to an election. So it seems to me that that is actually much more germane because the operative facts took place in the fall of 2016 as opposed to sometime in 2007 and before. Yeah. And just to be clear, you know, as I'm offering the criticism, it's not even one that I necessarily agree with completely myself. I'm still trying to sort out my own thoughts on it. But You're much too reasonable, Adam. Well, thanks. That's what we try to do here. But let's think, let's talk about the Cohen, the Cohen plead again, the plea, the idea that he's pleading guilty now for funneling payments to two, uh, two adult film stars that President Trump allegedly had affairs with in the past, making payments, um, at least in the case of one of them, practically on the eve of the election. Now, these are being charged now as campaign finance violations. Um, and it's true, I suppose, that that by paying these people off, by buying their silence, uh, it was helping the prospects of President Trump to get elected. But at the same time, what, what Cohen was alleged, what he's now confessed to have done is something that People like President Trump do, regardless of when they're in their office, whether they're running for office, right? Paying Uh, money to people to hush them up to avoid personal embarrassment, let alone President Trump getting elected. Uh, President Trump surely trying to avoid embarrassment uh, with with his wife, with his third wife. And as I was reading up on this, I I saw a blog post by Bob Bauer, who I think is is a friend of yours, right? Yes, he's a very good friend. Right. He's a former uh, President Obama's White House counsel and one of the nation's leading campaign finance lawyers. And over at the Lawfare blog uh, yesterday, uh, where Bauer is writing about the Cohen plea agreement, he said he, he, he said pretty candidly that normally prosecutors don't pursue these sorts of crimes. Um, let me just read a, a quick quote from this Lawfare post. He says, it was not certain that prosecutors would bring charges against Cohen for these payments. Except for the most clear-cut violations, like those involving straw donations that contributors channel to campaigns in the name of others, prosecutors tend to shy away from campaign finance enforcement. The sorts of payments at issue in the Daniels and McDougal matters can present tricky issues of motive. How much was Trump moved to silence these women to spare himself personal as well as political pain? And so we see here, and that's the end of the quote, so we see here uh, the prosecutors really pursuing uh, this, first of all, because Cohen's now ad- admitting or now, I guess, alleging that they were done primarily for purposes of advancing President Trump's campaign. Um, well, but also would- because obviously this creates space, uh, creates an opportunity to, 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 to use Cohen against Trump in the broader allegations uh, against Trump, including Russian collusion, right? Uh, yes. Well, let me give a, a sort of another complication on this. When these payments were made, the expectation on the part of just about everybody was that Trump was going to lose the election. And if Trump actually thought that he was going to lose this particular election, 
uh, then it seems as though the alternative motives in this particular case were absolutely more powerful than the ones that we have uh, mentioned in this particular time. So with all of that stuff going on, uh, the idea that somehow or other the, this was a campaign issue as opposed to a family issue or a general business issue, I think is very, very clouded. The other thing, of course, is one of the things that I find particularly obnoxious about all of this is there is clearly going to be at least some sort of a credibility fight between Cohen on the one hand, on the president, as to who authorized what when. Uh, I have no opinion on factual questions. I constantly remind myself I'm a professor of law, not a question of professor of fact. But what happens is if you do this in the form of a confession under oath, it sort of increases the credibility, uh, but you don't do this after there's been any kind of cross-examination. And I find that to be relatively tricky kinds of situation. It's also clear I think to some extent that this is, again, not at all related to the Russia probe. And yet the whole case started essentially because what happened was that Mueller got this thing, decided he could not prosecute it himself, and then decided to refer it over. And there's nothing about the terms of engagement that were given there, which indicates what Mueller is supposed to do or can do or is entitled to do when he comes up with these kinds of collateral wrongs. Another way of looking at it is saying, if it doesn't have anything to do with Russia, I just drop it. And then if anybody else wants to take it up, they can start from scratch. But to the extent that the information that was used in the New York prosecution against Cohen derives from the efforts of Mueller in his investigative capacity, then I think one has to say that it's a joint venture between the two offices. And if it falls outside the scope of what it is that Mueller is supposed to be able to do, uh, then the entire situation is further tainted. And so I've said from the beginning, I'm going to repeat it again. There are lots of very competent prosecutors who could have been made special prosecutor. It seems very clear and that Mueller is a friend of Rosenstein and a friend of Comey, uh, that the fact that he's a Republican or was a Republican means absolutely nothing under these circumstances. There's a lot of personal animus in this particular case, and you don't like having people who are immune from any kind of oversight, having that kind of animus are working in these kinds of situations. So uh, the people who were defending Mueller say, how can anyone call it a mis? a witch hunt when he's gotten two convictions. I think the answer is maybe it's not a witch hunt, but it is certainly an abuse of authority uh, to spend all your effort doing things that have nothing related to Russia. And you have yet to present a single credible case uh, that Trump has done something wrong on the Russian front. Now, mind you, I'm saying this as somebody who is not an admirer of the president and wish he would voluntarily resign. I've said so multiple times, happy to repeat it now and expect that as in previous cases, somehow or other, it's going to fall on deaf ears, particularly in the White House. Well, so while I don't agree with people who treat Mueller as a saint, I just I don't go for the whole Saint Robert thing. Um, this idea that he he does nothing wrong, his office never leaks. Yeah, I, I, I tend not to put that much faith in anybody, uh, whether as a prosecutor or not, even a special prosecutor. Um, I don't care how special he is, but I, I would say that all things considered, Mueller was probably the best pick for this job, just in terms of his background in the FBI, his reputation for being a straight shooter, the fact that he is a Republican. I mean, so long as this sort of office exists. Um, and is given such broad powers, and we can get back to that in a little bit. I, I do think Mueller was probably the best choice, and so far I think he's he's done his job admirably. But there's a question of what his job is. I brought up the the the, the directive that Rosen that Rod Rosenstein, the acting attorney general, signed back in May of 2017, authorizing Mueller to take on these powers as special counsel. 
And, you know, we go back to this time and time again, and it's such startlingly broad powers. Uh, he says that the special counsel is authorized to conduct the investigation confirmed by then FBI Director Comey. And he says, including. So right off the bat, he says, including. So it's, it's a non-exhaustive list. And he says, first, any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation. And then they go on to say any any matters within the scope of 28 CFR Section 600, which I admit I haven't looked up lately. Um, uh, or oh, you don't know it by heart? Well, it's 600.4A, so we're getting a little specific. Oh, I forgot that. But so when you have that second provision that says any matters that arose or may arise directly from the investigation, what you've given the special counsel is a blank check, effectively, to go pursue anything that comes up or touches on this investigation. Now, it says anything that arises or may arise directly from the investigation, but I still to this day have no idea what directly means versus indirectly. And so, well, I, let me give you my reaction. Sure. First of all, I think that uh, Mueller was the worst possible, not the best possible pick, uh, because he's a friend of Comey's. And to the extent that what you're investigating is going to involve the conflicts of interest between Comey and the president, uh, you do not want somebody who's been a close associate with one person working on this particular thing. Uh, the fact that Mueller is a Republican is neither here nor there. We know there's a deep split in the Republican Party, and we also know that political loyalties are much weaker than personal animosities, and it seems to be those which are exceptionally powerful in the way in which this particular case has gone. Now, then when it comes to the question of what the word directly mean, uh, there are two readings of this. The one that you're giving is, I think, closer to the natural language, which says if you find this out in the course of trying to investigate Russia, that something else has gone on, it comes directly out of it. So we don't care what the subject matter turns out to be. Uh, so if it turned out, for example, they discovered something about uh, one of these characters and been involved in an illegal poker game some years ago, they could investigate that along with everything else. I read this in a way which is designed to make sure, since it's the special prosecutor with extraordinary powers, that the word directly means directly related to the subject matter of the Russian investigation. And so it may well be that there was a collateral series of payments made by A to B at the time that the Russians were alleged to have made their particular payments. And since what you discover in that investigation may influence what you learn about the Russian investigation, I would think that you could cover that. My interpretation is much narrower than yours. Uh, but I think in general, uh, the rule of construction ought to be that when you're dealing with extraordinary grants uh, to highly independent people, you construe them narrowly, you don't construe them broadly. So I think Mueller has taken the very broad situation. And why there is admiration for this, again, it completely befuddles me. I mean, I think, in effect, the, the most clever thing that he's done is to say absolutely nothing publicly, so that everybody will now laud him. Uh, whereas I'm saying, I don't know what his motivations are, precisely because he said nothing at Now, on the question of Mueller's silence, his refusal to engage uh, Trump in any of these attacks that Trump has been levying at him through Twitter, on the one hand, I think it does deserve a lot of credit. He's not, he's not rising to the bait. On the other hand, I have to say, given what we've just discussed in terms of the special powers, uh, the special counsel's powers and independence, I've always thought that a special counsel or an independent counsel should err on the side of disclosure, right? since he doesn't have the same oversight from the Justice Department. That's the whole point, that he doesn't have the same oversight. I've thought that special counsels should be much more transparent in what they're doing and why, 
so that the people can judge what's happening. Now, of course, there's limits on what any prosecutor can do, often for the for the sake of those who are under investigation. But everybody keeps talking about this report that Mueller will someday give to Congress. I mean, great, that'll be great. But in the meantime, the American people, I think, deserve to know a lot more about the extent to which Mueller is is reaching, sort of stretching the powers of his office, and the extent to which he's he's stopping himself short. I had a, a last year. I did an event for the Federalist Society where I got to interview Ken Starr mm-hmm. um, in Washington D.C. on the nature of an independent council. And Starr said something that stuck with me ever since. He said the challenge for an independent council is always to try to create a little ersatz justice department within his own office that promotes accountability, that promotes transparency in the absence of real leadership from the Justice Department. And so while I think to his credit, Mueller has avoided saying much in response to Trump, I wish Mueller would say more in general about what his office is doing and why. Because, and this gets back to Cohen and Manafort and and, and Carter Page and and Papadopoulos and everybody else. Uh, when when President Trump, or sorry, when, when Special Counselor Mueller and other offices of the Justice Department are now sort of going after the president's associates for things that aren't, you know, especially in the case of Manafort, directly related to the campaign, things that happened years ago in advance. And everybody's watching this happening and everybody's expecting that what this is really about is lining up ammunition against President Trump for the real uh, Russia collusion prosecution or perjury or, or whatever, or obstruction of justice. Um, I think we ought to know in advance the extent mm-hmm. to which Mueller really is reaching for these sorts of prosecutions so the public can judge this prosecution. Because in the end, the people are going to be the ultimate judges of whether what Mueller did was, was right or wrong. Well, it may well be the House of Representatives and the Senate. Look, I agree with you. There's a huge distinction between rising to the bait and answering the, the dumb tweets that the president makes on a sailor's standard basis. But on the other hand, if you're going to initiate a major public prosecution that is unrelated to the Russia investigation, so that if it comes in at all, it only comes in under that second clause about being directly arising from, I think what you have to do is to give a statement of why it is you think it's in the public good for this prosecution to take place and for the resources of the special prosecutor to be devoted for and what it is that you hope to achieve from this. And if what you come up and saying, I am in favor of doing this because if I can get Mr. Manafort, I know it will disgrace the president and hurt his chances for a re-election in 2020, in 2020 and perhaps compromise the ability of the Republicans to retain the House and Senate in 2018, then he should be fired. Well, I just don't know what his motivations are because he's given us no particular information about that. And I do not think it's appropriate for a special prosecutor to remain a sphinx when you're talking about cases like this. Let me ask you the question. You know more about this than I do, I think. But suppose this were a major prosecution of some kind of criminal underground figure done by somebody who's ordinary. Normally, I think the government starts to give a uh, press release of the sort which says, we've indicted X, Y, and Z on the following charges because we think that the chain of evidence shows that he has corrupted the political process in the following way. And I think that's perfectly legitimate to do. What I can't do is when looking at the subject matter of these two investigations is figure out any public statement that Mr. Mueller could make that would increase my confidence in his judgment that he's sticking to the thing. 
it has to be, Adam, a matter of extreme delicacy and that nothing whatsoever is done under the clear major authorization provision in the Declaration of Powers that Rosenstein got to him. And everything is done under the residual savings court. And what's going to make it even crazier is you know that the Democrats are going to line all of this up and say if there is a dubious violation of a campaign finance law uh, to which we depend upon the statement of a witness who has not been subject to cross-examination, we're going to start to impeach. Uh, then he's had huge implications on the way in which the a political system done. And, you know, I'm just looking right now with uh, Mr. Trump's statement about uh, what you call it, about our friend Cohen. He says uh, Trump is hitting out at him. And he says, you're fabricating the um, you're fabricating testimony. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know whether he is or is not. But it is certainly clear to me that one of the dangers that you get about this kind of case is when you do this through a plea and there's no cross-examination, then in effect we have no idea whether the statements are either true or false. Yeah. Yeah, and and these statements, because they'll be sworn – I mean, and assuming they're not backed up with audio recordings or something, um, you know, Cohen's recordings of Trump – They'll ultimately be the basis that Cohen's sworn statements, Manafort's sworn statements will be the basis for perjury uh, accusations against Trump. If Trump ever answers questions and his answers don't line up with, say, Cohen's and Manafort's uh, uncross-examined allegations. But in terms of both Mueller and Trump, one of the things that I find most frustrating about all of this is that Mueller's supporters – uh, cheer him on and sort of advise him from a distance as if he were just an ordinary prosecutor. And Which he's, he's not. not. And President Trump's supporters, when they say, oh, he shouldn't testify, he should he should never testify, he should stonewall, uh, they are advising the president as though he were just an ordinary criminal suspect and not the president of the United States with an independent constitutional obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. This morning, just for old time's sake, I went online and looked at President Trump's uh, swearing the oath of office in January of 2017, where he, he swears an oath to faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States and to the best of his ability, uh, preserve, protect, and defend uh, the, Constitution the Constitution of the United States. The United. He, he has constitutional and moral obligations be unlike any other criminal defendant or criminal suspect in the United States. Um, and so for his supporters to urge him on like he were just a criminal defendant, while Mueller's supporters urge him on as if he were just an ordinary run-of-the-mill U.S. attorney, it's just utterly maddening. And I think it sells too short the constitutional stakes surrounding this entire, entire debate. Okay, I agree with that, but I'm not sure of the implication that I draw. I mean, my own view about all of this is that the only way that the president can discharge his office is for him to be free of multiple prosecutions. Uh, there's a very important distinction between impeachment proceedings on the one hand and indictments on the other. In order to get an impeachment proceedings going, there's no unilateral decision that is made by one person to initiate it. You have to persuade a majority of the House of Representatives to do it. And And then what you have to do is to have them agree amongst themselves as to what the particular articles of impeachment are going to look like uh, so that the case goes through a thorough political process. 
But it's a mistake to assume that Mr. Mueller is the only person who can indict the president if the president is indictable. As best I can tell it, an indictment could come from any other prosecutor in the United States, and perhaps he could be even indicted under state law for various kinds of offenses if he doesn't get the immunity. Uh, So my own view about all of this is that what happens is that the president probably, in my view, is under a constitutional duty so that he could keep the office running to refuse to answer any of these questions. I think it's just an impossible compromise if we start to imagine we're going to do this and then start running it through. All right, Mr. President, you've been indicted. Are we going to put him in jail and subject him to bail requirements of one sort or another? Are we going to release him on his own recognizance but only make sure that he has a bracelet around his ankle, which lets everybody know where he is, including the Russians? Uh, The whole thing simply doesn't make any kind of sense. And I think the president was actually right in a strange way to say that McGahn should go and meet with the special prosecutor and tell him everything he knows. Peter Wallison, who had this position under Reagan, said that's what happened in the Reagan administration. If you think you're innocent, you go there. The man now has all the information. And the question, which is completely unresolved by the Constitution as it stakes, is can you make not criminal indictments uh, outside of the impeachment, but can you actually make a request for documents, which was honored in the Nixon case? Uh, But there's a distinction between the Nixon case and this one. At that particular point, there was all sorts of evidence that everything that was going on made its way clear up to the White House. In this particular case, you don't have the slightest bit of evidence whatsoever yet, uh, direct and non-controvertible, about the nature of the president's involvement with Russia. And we have all sorts of perfectly good reasons to believe that the Russians have every incentive on their own uh, to do this um, in order to disrupt the the election, whether or not they're going to collude with Mr. Trump. I think the president made an incredibly stupid statement, which he's capable to do, uh, to say, I believe Mr. Putin when he said he didn't interfere in the American election. That's complete balderdash. I think what he said it for was he says if the Russians didn't intervene, then I can't collude with them. What he should have said is you find out whether or not they colluded. There's a lot of evidence that says that they did, uh, but you have no evidence about me. And so I think this prosecution has gone on much too long under these circumstances. And I don't care two figs about the president's independent reputation as a person. What I do care about the effectiveness that he has in dealing with this office and everything that takes place in this special prosecution now is going to influence and influence the word for the worse the way in which we conduct foreign affairs uh, with the Russians, the Chinese or anybody else. Because the moment you are tough on Putin, is that evidence of the fact that there is no deal? And the moment you do something genuinely stupid like the president meeting with Putin in Helsinki, is that evidence that he turns out to be corrupt? Get rid of this prosecution. And I think the conduct of foreign affairs and domestic affairs would go better. Uh, so my own view is I think Mueller has gone on much too long. It's already been, what, 13, no, 15 months. And I think that he certainly should be asked to wind this thing up very quickly. He wants to submit any report to Congress, fine. But I do not think that he could do an indictment. And I think it would be, remember you talked about public statements? I think he should make a public statement right now as to whether or not he thinks he has the power to indict the president if he finds evidence that he believes to be sufficient to justify criminal conduct. I don't think that he can indict the president, and I'm very dubious that he could even get discovery uh, by way of documents or by way of interrogatories. I think what he can do is to say, look, uh, 
we want you to make sure that all these documents are preserved. So after you're out of office, if there's a criminal offense, which took place either in office or before you went into office, we could prosecute you in accordance with the ordinary rules of law. I just don't think that the prosecutions, the investigation so far has gone on too long. In some ways, when you hearing, in, uh, I'm not saying you're one of President Trump's defenders, but when President Trump's defenders, oh, yeah, God, yes. when President Trump's defenders make that argument, it reminds me of the person who you know kills his parents and then cries for mercy because he's an orphan, right? The person who could end this investigation swiftly is President Trump by simp- by releasing documents. by by releasing documents to Mueller by answering questions and and just getting this over with. You asked earlier, you know, what are the implications of my criticism of Mueller and and Trump? For Mueller, I think he should offer more reporting along the way of what he thinks his powers are and where he thinks this investigation is headed. For Trump, I think it is simply a matter of I say simply, it's not that simply. I don't want to understate it. For 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 President Trump, I think the solution has to be to answer questions as quickly as possible to get this behind us, to just get rid of this this storm cloud surrounding uh, the, the presidency. Wow. Now, let's talk really quickly about a couple of lawyers. One we've already mentioned, uh, uh, Cohen, the president's personal lawyer. The other is Don McGahn, the White House counsel. There was an astonishing report in the New York Times just a few days ago detailing how uh, McGahn has, the headline says, cooperated extensively in the Mueller inquiry. And the thrust of the story was that Don McGahn and his own personal lawyer, Bill Burke, who I think was deputy White House counsel under President Bush, um, they were given either explicit or tacit um, authorization by President Trump to cooperate with the Mueller inquiry uh, and answer questions. Now, Harvard law professor Noah Feldman has a column in Bloomberg uh, yesterday or today, saying that McGahn actually sold his client um, too cheaply uh, by not pushing back and resisting cooperation. That McGahn, as counsel, White House counsel, has obligations to his client, not Trump personally, but the presidency. And, and to sort of walk away from that and cooperate raises real questions. I have to admit, while I, I, I find Cohen to be a, a uniquely loathsome uh, uh, kind of lawyer. Um, you know, I, I definitely hold McGahn in higher esteem than that. Um, I, I was a little bit troubled by seeing the president's own lawyers, his personal lawyers, his White House lawyers, um, cooperating so much. Even though I just said a minute ago how important cooperation is, I know from being a lawyer and studying law um, that, that lawyers and their unique obligations to protect their clients to the fullest extent possible under the law um, it really is shocking to see the president's own lawyers, especially Cohen taping his client, and then prosecutors using that evidence. Now, you've been teaching lawyers and law students a lot longer than I have. What's your reaction to all of this? Are you as troubled by this as I am? Well, I'm not troubled as much by the McGahn situation. Any privilege that the president has, he could waive. But what you did is you kind of switched sides on this. Originally, you said that the president has special obligations in the office, and so therefore he has to come forward. And now you say he has special obligations of the office, and so he should be able to stop McGahn from testifying, which I think— No, no, just to be clear, what I'm saying is I definitely do think the president should testify. But in terms of McGahn advising the president— and then McGahn having his own sort of conflict of interest of whether he should cooperate well, I think with the, the prosecution. If the president just, waves just, it and just, wants to testify, I don't see it. I mean, certainly nobody is going to say that the president could not do the things that you've requested on his own thing. He could call up Mueller tomorrow and say, I'd love to talk with you and let's put it on record. 
I think that's fine. I think the president should say also, I'll tell you what, uh, let's go on the Dick Cabot show to pick a name from the past and we'll talk it out right there in front of him and have a nice moderator between us if he wants to do that kind of thing. Uh, But I do not think that he could be compelled. Uh, But I don't think there's anything wrong if he says, look, I want McGahn to go there. What Peter Wallison said seems to me to make some sense is if you're going to try to say we've got to get the deposition for the president because it turns out he has information that only he has and we can't get any other way. And so you make a kind of necessity plea to override the privilege. If you've gotten stuff from Mr. McGahn, it's going to be more difficult for you to make that. And it's also the case when McGahn comes forward, he's not under a cloud of anything whatsoever uh, so that he can probably be a bit more candid and a little bit less self-defensive and is likely, I think, therefore to provide more accurate accurate information as to to what is going on. So uh, the whole thing, I think, troubles me. So I'm going to again say the longer this thing goes on, the more you're going to get strange situations like this in which reasonable people like us can disagree. I think when you have an investigation of this sort, uh, one of the things that they did not do and should have done was put a timeline on this. It's been 15 months. There's been no action on the first front. What makes it even more troublesome is there have been other investigations that have been taken on by Congress on this subject, which have also turned up nothing. And I can assure you that the reporters of the New York Times are working overtime and night in an effort to get something more clear. What makes this even more difficult is I do think there are serious cases of criminality based on available information about the way in which the FISA court was influenced by the phony material from the Steele dossier, which was submitted by the Justice Department, signed by Comey and Rosenstein. And everybody has urged the president to do the following, and I would join in, which is to take all of those documents which are still qualified or classified and release them. Uh, so that people can understand exactly what was said to whom and where. So this is kind of ironic. If I thought that the authorization that you had under Mueller was as broad as you say could reasonably be read, then I think he has to investigate uh, criminal charges against Comey. Yeah. Do you I just agree can't, with that or not? Well, I just I, – I was, I That's was, involving Russia. Yeah, I was – I got to be honest. I, I was struck by your comment about the, the deadline on uh, – on the prosecution. I just don't understand how that would work. First of all, 18 I mean, you put, months and you're out, baby. 18 months. Then anybody who's under investigation knows all they need to do is, is stay silent. The White House can stonewall for 18 months. But even even in the no, best of circumstances, but even, 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 even in the best of circumstances, when, say, the, the special counsel is pursuing some preliminary uh, prosecutions of people like Cohen or I mean, Cohen's the southern the, the U.S. attorney, but people like Manafort and so on. The prosecution and then any subsequent appeal of those crimes could t- could those convictions could take more than eighteen months. Well, so I, I, what I mean yeah. is, you cannot institute new charges after that period. Yeah, well, obviously so, you could carry on the charges that are in the middle of the particular case. But I also yeah. think what's ironic about this is nobody has gone after Comey. Yeah, and, yeah. And, or Hillary Clinton. Now. Mind you, I think it would be a terrible mistake to go after her because of all the political overtones, notwithstanding the fact that I think she probably did commit some very serious offense. Uh, But I don't see any such complications with respect to Comey. And I think the behavior before the FISA court was highly dubious. Everybody seems to agree that it was there. We've had several heads fall. Um, To give you another mistake that Mullen made, a serious mistake in my judgment, is you find out this fellow – Peter Strotz is making 
vehement anti-Trump statements with his girlfriend, Lisa Page. Okay. What happens is you fire him from this investigation. That is not enough. If you have somebody whom you think to be involved politically and improperly, and that person has collected records, you cannot use any information that that person has corrected or organized as part of your investigation because God knows what he put in there and whether or not the thing is tainted. In a normal case, if a lawyer is disqualified by virtue of the fact of improper conduct, the second lawyer who takes over cannot use the work product of the first lawyer. And if that's the case, then that should be exactly the same rule with respect to Mueller. But there's no evidence after he fired Strauss that he did basically ignore all the evidence that he put together. Am I wrong about this, Adam? Well, I don't. I don't know that you're wrong. So we just don't know, right? And but, and, and this is well, an area I mean, where I think, I think disclosure would be helpful. The, well, did Mueller say I'm not using any of the information that was gathered by somebody who was shown prejudice? In? He never made a public statement on that. Right. Well, anybody made, else in this office? And, you know, this is part of the Sphinx proposal. Yeah. And I think, in effect, that you're concealing very serious and relevant things. Maybe I'm wrong about the law. Maybe well, there's m- some – but you should at least have to talk about once you get rid of this guy, what are you going to do with the work product that he produced prior to the time that he was demoted or fired? Right. Now, it's it's funny. You have the, both with the Clinton – you know, the Clinton investigation that never really happened or now the, the Trump investigation. And both there's that risk of political politicization, right? I think the moment that President Trump at that presidential debate with Hillary Clinton in what was it, August of 2016, you know, told her that if, if he were president, she'd be in jail. Um, that I think was a that was a dark, dark moment. And I think as a practical matter, whatever it says about the Trump presidency and so on, that. I think that statement and then President Trump's election prevent close the door on there ever being a prosecution or investigation of Hillary Clinton. There's just no way the Justice Department would pursue this after President Trump said to his political opponent that she would be in jail. I mean, he he personally ended the prosecution by saying the investigation by saying that i could not agree more look the man is a walking train wreck but 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 about about struck though uh obviously that's that the things that he was saying um uh, those text messages and so on right they they raise the same specter of uh of politicization now the question is with struck and we don't this is again where transparency be useful because we just don't know the answer the question is what role was he playing on the team? He wasn't the only person on that legal team. He, w- he wasn't the only person uh, signing off on legal documents. And so the question is, you know, is, we often say fruit of the poisonous tree. Well, we don't know if the tree was poisonous. We know that a branch on the tree struck was poisonous, but we don't know what the tree was. And he so- was ahead of a major portion of this investigation. We may not know that, but what we do know is whatever part of the tree he infected has to be lopped off and that information cannot be used. So if this independent work product of which he was not a part, that can go ahead. But when you have Sphinx Roberts sitting there and not letting us know what he did with this, it is not appropriate for his defenders to say, ah, he fired him. But not answer the question of what did he do with the work product? Yeah. Well, like you said, like I, like we've said, I'm. I, I think more transparency and more disclosure is important. I'm perfectly comfortable with the the investigation continuing to rely on things that Struck was involved with, so long as he wasn't the only person 
responsible for that is not the rule the rule is whenever there's jointness a single person contaminates the whole pool yeah uh, can we talk um, about pardons that's the rule that i would follow yeah well, well mean, let's talk about it, go no go ahead go, go ahead. ahead i was just gonna say i you, you know more about this than me so i'm not gonna contest that um i just i'm i'm much less troubled by struck i'm troubled by struck um but much much less troubled by his actions when he was just one of a much larger investigatory team, even if he was a, even when he was a senior member of that team, um, he he was he was one of several people involved, and I, I just I'm 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 less willing to say that everything he he touched on should be should be sort of treated as contaminated, kind of like where Democrats are demanding to see every document that crossed Brett Kavanaugh's yeah. desk when he was staff secretary. No, that's it, a completely different no, issue. Adam. It, that's a question of going after irrelevant information. And this is well, a, yeah. and with the explicit purpose of delaying a nomination and of trying to put the Republicans into an impossible position. I'm just saying in this particular case, if you're a special prosecutor, what you do is you figure out if there is somebody who has been on an ordinary prosecution involved in some kind of improper activity, if the rule is his work product cannot be used, whether or not other people participated in, the same constraints have to apply to Mueller. And my view is, in general, what happens is joint production situations. It's the worst person in the team that does it because it's like one rotten apple in a barrel. It infects everything that everybody else does on that team. And so what you have to do is start over. That's the rule that takes place in civil prosecutions. I remember many years ago, I worked on a case involving major antitrust implications. A firm was disqualified. They had in its possessions very many important documents that related to the merits of the case. Uh, the new team that took over did not get access to any of those documents. And when it filed discovery requests, uh, they were rebuffed the second time around. If that's the way in which these precedents start to go, I do not think Mr. Mueller should be exempt from it. So I'm going to put it again in the same form. There are standard rules about how prosecutors behave. When you create a special prosecutor who has a roving commission and fewer informal checks, the last thing you want to do is remove any of the checks on him that would apply to other prosecutors who are much more securely embedded in a chain of command. Now, Richard, we've been we've been talking now for over a half hour. I don't know about you, but I haven't been following Twitter while we've been talking. For all we know, when we when we stop taping this, we could switch over to Twitter and find out that President Trump has pardoned Cohen or Manafort. Now, of course, he, he almost certainly hasn't. Um, but it's an open question of the extent to well, which he'll use the pardon that. power uh, strategically uh, between now and and the end of his term. And I'm just curious for your your, your own sort of you know gut reaction or initial instinct if President Trump were to begin using the pardon power and, and pardoning Manafort, pardoning Cohen, you know. And say, say, because you give it the best possible, you know, in the best possible light, President Trump thinks that he is being wrongly pursued by an unhinged and politically biased prosecution that's trying to delegitimize himself. And he's decided that the only way to preserve his ability to serve uh, as president of the United States is to use the pardon power to shut this down. Uh, what would you think of that? Well, I would not like it, but of course, it would not shut anything down. Uh, What would happen is you now pardon Mr. Cohen. And what he starts to do is he says, well, the president pardoned me. And now I'm going to really tell you what a miserable human being he was on everything else. And since I'm pardoned, they can't prosecute me. 
It's also the case that even though you could pardon him for federal offenses, Cohen can still be charged under state law for the many violations of state law that he might have committed while he was doing something. I think generally speaking, the correct view is that the pardon power is unchecked in the sense that there's no other branch of government can tell the president that he cannot do it. But if you think that it amounts to some form of obstruction of justice, then he can be punished for that and impeached, I mean, uh, just as he could be impeached for an abuse of any other particular power that he has. Uh, I just find it very difficult to see how the pardon gets him out of that problem. So if you're trying to do this, you pardon him. It's not going to change any of the dynamics with Stormy Daniels. You pardon Manafort, those crimes still remain crimes, but there was nothing in them to implicate the president to begin with. Um, this is essentially no more impeachable, I think, than the President Clinton on the last day of office, of course, pardoning Mark Rich, which was obviously a political payoff deal of one kind or another. Uh, look, I mean, I think the whole thing has gone so far. Uh, there is nobody who's involved in this situation who has covered himself with glory. There is nobody who looks better after this sordid affair has begun than afterwards. Uh, There are no heroes in this particular case. I I think what happens is it has gone on long enough. I think that we should, at this particular point, uh, let this thing become a political battle. My guess is if the Democrats gain control of the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, there may be sufficient steam in there to try to begin an impeachment situation, which I would regard as a debacle under these circumstances. Uh, so I'm left in this horrible position of thinking that the president is totally unfit to serve in office because of his character, temperament, and demeanor, notwithstanding the fact that I agree with many of his policies and disagree with some of the others. I think this investigation has gone much too far, and I think Mr. Mueller has been given the benefit of all sorts of doubts on a bunch of questions, some of which I raised today, and some of which you've raised. And I don't think he was an ideal choice. I think it was a terrible choice. The rule in these things is expertise you can get anywhere. Bias is only with a few number of people. And since we know that there were so many antecedent connections with Mueller, the people who praised that nomination or appointment when it was made, made a huge mistake in judgment. That's my considered opinion. Yeah. yeah for me, I'd say that, that, um, Time, I think, is something we can afford as a nation to invest in this. Yeah, it's very hectic. I think the only thing worse than a prolonged uh, investigation that ends with a full report from the special counsel after he's pursued all legitimate avenues, I think the only thing worse than that would be things stopping short in the middle of things with questions that will surround this investigation forever. I mean, questions will always surround this investigation We'll be talking about it for years and years after it's over. But I'd say that if it stopped in the middle of things, whether by a deadline or by uh, President Trump uh, ending everything with, with by, by firing Mueller, or shutting down the office or, or pardons or, or whatever he tries to do, I think the only thing that could be worse than seeing this thing go to its natural end is seeing it reach an unnatural end. And I think we saw that in, I think we saw that when President Trump fired Comey, thinking he was, you know, as he told his, the, the, the Russian visitors in his office, that put an end to the, the Russian investiga- investigation. It didn't. It only made things worse. And so for his- And my view is if there is stuff out there and you end this investigation, you could always start another one with another prosecutor and a fresh coat of paint on a very different campus. Well, the, the, only, the, um, only, I- the only thing worse than a prosecution going on too long is probably a podcast going on too long. Yes, I think that's right.
Well, uh, Richard, as always, it's a real pleasure to have these conversations, and we thank our listeners for joining us. Uh, in addition to this podcast, please do be sure to check out the Hoover Institution's many other podcasts, including uh, Area 45 by Bill Whalen, uh, The Classicist by Victor Davis Hanson, Uncommon Knowledge by Peter Robinson, and of course, uh, The Libertarian by our very own Richard Epstein. Richard, we'll talk to you next time. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.